the disconnect that we have just about masks for our kids or about these vaccinations is a similar irrational, not based on any logic kind of rift that I saw uh, that happened in the 90s. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. John Kalaki has had a front row seat in America's culture wars. As a gay man and a dancer in the 1980s, he lost over a hundred friends to AIDS. As an arts programmer in the 1990s and 2000s, he confronted police who threatened to shut down artists who they deemed to be obscene. And as the former director of the Flynn Theater in Burlington, Vermont, he agreed to allow a visit by presidential candidate Donald Trump in 2016 only to break down in tears after a night of vitriol and protest. Today, Kalaki is a Vermont state representative representing South Burlington and is one of a handful of openly LGBTQ legislators. He has a new book of essays, Because Art. I asked him why he wrote the book. I'm a very blessed person. I started as a dancer in the 70s in New York. I went into arts administration. I ran some dance companies. I ran a festival. I went to work at a museum. I worked in philanthropy at the Pew Charitable Trust at the San Francisco Foundation. I ran a theater in San Francisco, the Yerba Buena Center. 2010, I came to Vermont to run the Flynn Center. 2018, I retired from that and I ran the legislature and I'm in my second term. And David, I just felt like throughout my career, I've always been writing. And that's been one of my practices uh, outside my administrative side of things. And I also make films. And I just felt like, well, maybe some of these things are important to remember uh, for me, but as well as for other people. Hmm. For instance, you know, in the 70s, New York was very derelict. But what was happening is I went as a ballet dancer and I was really good in Chicago, got a scholarship to Harkness Ballet. And then I was only mediocre in the classical ballet world at the age of 20. It's kind of interesting. I mean, watch the tennis yesterday, right? And these young teenage women are incredible athletes. But I hit New York at that time and I realized, well, I could have a career as a court of ballet dancer in Houston Ballet or places. But I thought I want more than that. And, and what was happening in New York, the ferment that was happening in postmodernism and everything was being reconfigured, reconstructed. It was post Stonewall. So gender was involved. Um, I was able to be an openly gay person in New York. That was thrilling. But there was no definitions of any of this. We were all making it up. And I got to work with people like Meredith Monk and Trisha Brown. And it was just an incredible time. So it went from that to... Um, as my life and as my career progressed in the late 80s, I found that I was had moved from New York and I was in Minneapolis, but AIDS was destroying my entire generation. I'd known over 100 people that died of AIDS, and it was such a terrifying time where, and, you know, it was pretty much in the book I even talked, make the parallels from COVID to the AIDS pandemic, because People were afraid. They didn't know what was happening. There was malfeasance, really, from the pharmaceutical companies and our government at that time. How so? And, um, well, um, 
government officials were calling for people to be quarantined if they're HIV positive. Um, Right-wing um, pundits were saying that they, if prisoners were HIV positive, they should not be released, even though they've done their time. Um, one um, conservative politician said people with AIDS should be tattooed on their arms and their buttocks to protect others from being infected. And it was sort of like, well, wait, we don't even know what it is. And, you know, body fluids were very scary. People in hospitals, they were very scary. The families, they were very scary. And so artists, of course, responded pretty vibrantly, passionately with anger and act up happened. And there were a number of artists that were using the body and trying to reclaim the body. And I did that in some of my films and I have some of the voiceovers from, from those early AIDS films in the book. But I also supported artists like Karen Finley and Ron Athey, uh, Reza Abdo. And that was the culture wars that happened at that time. And Senator Helms was calling for the defunding of the artists because we were presenting these artists. Um, this was you know, Senator think, Jesse Helms from North Carolina, who, who was Jesse sort Helms. of the the most iconic culture warrior of that generation. He was. And, you know, this was pre-internet, but there still was a lot of cable television. And I remember once my mother called me uh, from Chicago and very supportive mom. But she, she went, what did you do? And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, Rush Limbaugh was yelling about you for a half hour on television last night. And I said, well, mom, it was about Ron Athey, this artist from Los Angeles. But what did he say? And he said, well, buckets of AIDS tainted blood were intentionally thrown at the audience. This is what Rush Limbaugh said. So I said, mom, that didn't happen. He's a clown and he's lying for ratings. But my mother said, it's on television. Mm. And so there was this kind of furor that happened about what people thought these artists were doing versus what they were really doing. And so the museum I worked at, Walker, it became targeted. I became targeted. I got these calls at my home saying, we got the abortion doctor, you're next. And it was a very strange time to look out your window before you left for work and wonder if someone was sitting in a truck or a car with a shotgun. You know, it, it didn't stop the artists that you were presenting. Um, but I felt like the lessons from the 90s with the culture wars is so pertinent to today mm. and the lost souls and the stories from the AIDS pandemic are so pertinent for today. And people, when I talk at colleges or show some of my work at festivals, young queer kids have no idea what AIDS was like in the 80s or 90s. It's now just a manageable chronic disease. And, you know, you can take a, a, a pill beforehand and you're, you'll be okay. And it, it was, I think it's important to know the history. Uh, also, you know, uh, as now a, a legislator, it was inconceivable in my day that an out person could be elected to office. And now we have hundreds and hundreds, you know, but the, the first person that I knew of was Harvey Milk. And right. I was in San Francisco the night he was assassinated. He was the mayor of San Francisco when he was killed. 
he was a uh, yeah he was a supervisor. Oh, we, supervisor. We, we we called him the mayor of Castro Street because okay. his his camera shop was on Castro Street, which was sort of the center of one of the gay neighborhoods. And but uh, and I, I, he certainly would have been mayor if he had lived um, of the city. But um, you know, it, and so I now you know at the legislature every year, queer kids come from around the state and. Pre-pandemic, 91 kids came to meet the out legislators, and there were seven of us. And, you know, our president pro temp, Becca Ballant, is an out lesbian. And that's that's pretty profound. What difference know, for, does what difference does that make? David, when I, I, I grew up in an Irish Catholic working class family. My dad and my grandfathers sold cattle at the Chicago Stockyards. So and I went to an Irish Catholic school. And so in high school, when I said to one of my older sisters, I'm, there's five kids, I'm the middle child. So I think I'm gay. They went, well, what does that mean? There, there were no role models. And any images gay were, you know, were that people were evil. People were being blackmailed. People were being silenced. They were all tragic. There were, there were no superheroes, you know? And now these kids who are coming to the state house can dream that they can be Becca Ballant. And that's profound because mm -hmm. I didn't have any of those dreams when I was younger and it just opened up the possibilities for everybody. And so part of this is I, all of these aspects of my life, I thought I've written through it all. And so is there a mosaic narrative that sort of makes sense? And that's what I, spent the last year kind of looking at my writings and uh i really started in the 90s uh really trying to let me, let me just uh, ask you john i mean going back to that idea that you had 90 uh queer kids coming to the legislature do you think it's any easier any different today to come out as a young person than it was when you came out in the 80s well it's uh, you know, queer kids face a higher rate of suicide. I'm told um, kids are still being pushed away from their families. I'm told. Um, but these 91 kids have each other. And they have a community that's not just their high school. It's, it's all around the state. So they have each other's, you know, they can be texting each other. Is it easier? Probably not. On a personal level to tell your best friend, or if I was sitting on your porch with you and it came up, I, you know, if I didn't know you, you I, I'd be nervous, you know, uh, and you know, when you're 13, 14, and you're not sure about anything, it's hard to even talk about your uncertainty. But I, I think there's more opportunities. Hmm. I, I had a, a, if I could, do you mind if I jump around sure. for a second? So 25 years ago, I was uh, and I write about this. I was paralyzed from the neck down uh, from surgery. It was unexpected, but I found myself that I had a, sp a spinal tumor and I had surgery. So I find myself quadriplegic in a rehab hospital. My husband, Larry, is sleeping on the floor to be with me. And um, as soon as I got out of intensive care, the first day they picked pick me up because I did, couldn't move anything, rolled me uh, into a uh, a psychologist's office and they said you know while i'm here uh you know i could weekly meet with a psychologist so 
it, it was great. I thought, well, this is great. I never had expected this would happen. So her first question was, well, what's on your mind? And I said, well, could you tell me about the return of sexual function? And this is a woman that works in a rehab hospital who's a psychologist on my floor where spinal injured people, brain injuries, and people who've had strokes, okay? All three of those kinds of people are interested in return of sexual function. This psychologist said to me, I really don't know because I'm not gay. And I said, what are you talking about? I don't care. I didn't ask you about yourself. I'm talking about myself. And you asked me how I was feeling. And she said, I, well, I don't know. And so I, it was her ignorance. But I ended the session and called for the orderly to come get me. And I refused you know, to go see her again. But it allowed me to realize there was a void of information there. So I worked on a book called Queer Crips, Disabled Gay Men and Their Stories. Because I want that psychologist to have as a resource on her bookshelves, uh, because obviously she's not interested in it, but as she should be at working in a hospital, but at least she could say to someone, well, there is this book. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting, is it easier to be gay? Yes, in my life, but there's, it's, it's incremental as you, as you move through different aspects of of this. I want to go back to something you said about the culture wars of the 90s having echoes today. Um, what are some of the similarities and, and what are some of the culture wars today that kind of remind you of what you've been fighting about uh, in your various iterations in your life as an arts administrator, as a philanthropic donor? Um, yeah. What's changed and what's the same? Well, in 1990, I was at the Walker Arts Center and we opened that. It was January 1990. So we opened up the decade with a festival I curated, put together called Cultural Infidels. This is and in Min Minneapolis. Right? In Minneapolis yeah. at the Walker Arts Center. And the, the first artist to perform was Karen Finley, incredible feminist performance artist who does a lot about her body and how women's bodies are treated. And she also was doing, her, a lot of her friends had been dying of AIDS, so there's a lot of AIDS references in her work. It was called We Keep Our Victims Ready. So she was performing for three nights. The first night was sold out. I'm called over to the box office, and the box office said, these two men would like to speak to you, John. So I said, oh, hello, and you know, welcome. And they said, well, we'd like to see the performance. And I said, well, I'm sorry, it's sold out. And they said, no, we have to see the performance. We're the Vice Squad. I said, the Vice Squad? Okay, well, why are you here? And they said, well, we got a complaint that this is a pornographic performer. And I said, "From this is her first night ever in Minneapolis. No one has seen her. How can, you know, I could understand if you last night someone was upset, but no one has seen her. And they said, well, no, we got calls. So, so I said, okay, well, um, okay, you can sit on the stairs. It's sold out. I'm sorry, I can't offer your seat. And, um, you know, midway through, David, they left. They realized it was serious art. It was angry art. It was confrontational art. She was nude at one point in um, the piece, and she was taking chocolates and she saw on Valentine's Day and she, she was smearing the chocolate all over her body. And it was a very 
profoundly moving, cathartic performance. But I realized at that moment that people get triggered about something, their fears, and if they don't, they don't have to understand it, but they want to oppose it. And so through all of those years of the culture wars, the same thing happened, whether it was Bill T. Jones dancing with 52 handsome nudes on the stage, or it was Ron Athey doing piercing on stage, and it spirals into Rush Limbaugh saying buckets of AIDS, stain of blood were uh, intentionally, you know, thrown at the audience. None of these people who were opposing this work had seen it. So those are those were very interesting lessons. It also was difficult even for the art world to reconcile because the more mainstream art world wasn't so sure they liked these avant-garde um, artists. So they didn't necessarily rush to defend them when the Walker was being under attack for this. But soon Terence McNally's Corpus Christi was being attacked in theaters or Moises Kaufman's piece um, in theaters. And so, and then the museums were starting to be attacked for other things. So um, in a way, I, I think about the culture wars, like the, the right wing had a moral fervor about it and the art world didn't. So no one really won these wars, but I would say the art world lost it. So now I'm going to say earlier this week, I'm a legislator, right? I represent South Burlington. I get a call, an email from someone who's very upset about vaccine mandates. So I called her back and I said, well, let's talk about this. What are you worried about? And she said, well, I'm going to lose my job with these Biden mandates. I said, well, I don't think that that's what the president said. And I think it was that if companies with 100 people or more need to either be vaccinated or be tested. I said, so you just have to agree to be tested. You don't have to be vaccinated, but you have to be tested. And she started yelling at me, talking about it's her body and how can I do that? And ivermectin can really help. And, and I said, well, you know, I have a horse and ivermectin is really great for deworming. She says, well, my doctor says ivermectin works for COVID. And I, and I said, well, okay, I think you better get a second opinion on that. But the disconnect that we have just about masks for our kids or about these vaccinations is a similar irrational, not based on any logic kind of riff that I saw uh, that happened in the 90s. Now, I also... Um, at the, the Flint Center in, in 2017, um, we got a call from then the Trump campaign at, at wanting to rent the Flint. And, and I had rented to Senator Leahy uh, for something a few months before. So there was no way that I could say to the candidate, the Republican candidate, despite what I thought of him, that he couldn't use the Flint. Because I, I couldn't say we don't do political stuff because we had. So I went ahead with that. Um, and it, it was a while ago, but I don't know if you remember the furor that um, happened in Burlington. It was um, and I, was I remember online. I remember it well. I was across the street. Um, uh, Chris Hayes was filming at the uh, Burlington uh, Beer Works there um, while Trump was speaking inside the Flint. So it was a. Uh, it, it was a, yeah, there was a lot of activity, a lot of protest going on outside the Flynn. 
And there was a lot of protests against me. And that was interesting because um, David Zuckerman had led an online petition of 2,800 people had signed this petition to have me fired from the Flynn for allowing, you know, Trump to, to speak. And eventually they took that petition down. And six months later, I, you know, Zuckerman's a very good guy and we're friends. And he apologized and he said, you know, um, you were in a very hard situation and uh, I'm sorry. I did the wrong thing. But it was like, what is First Amendment? It's the only things we like. You know, and that was one of the most hate-filled evenings that I heard from Donald Trump. What he said on this stage was horrifying. What stands and out to you? He was, uh, it was an interesting issue um, where if someone stood up while the candidate was speaking, his supporters would go and tell the person to sit down and please be quiet. They couldn't touch the person. If the person continued to disrupt, the police were there, not in um, their uniforms, but they were in suits. They would come and then they'd, they'd ask the person to either sit down or they'd have to leave the event. So, of course, there were a lot of people that had come to, um, you know, disrupt the event. And it was kind of a an ongoing circus. Um, and But he fueled the flames. You know, like I remember one person stood up and, of course, he, that, that person was being escorted out to cheers. And, and he was saying, well, leave his coat. It's cold out there. Let him, let him freeze. Let him freeze to death. I don't care. You know, I'm thinking, you petty man. What, what are you talking about? You know, and he, how he talked about the border issues was so, it was disgusting. And I have to say that um, it brought back those moments when I was in Minneapolis at the Walker Arts Center looking out my window to see if someone was there um, with a gun. Because outside the Flynn, where you were, it was extraordinary. And of course, that's where I wanted to be. But I had to be at the Flynn because I was, you know, they had rented the theater. Right. And there was such antagonism that I felt that I could actually be harmed again. Hmm. And it, so it was fascinating to think about, well, this is interesting. I've angered the right wing and now I've angered the left wing in, the, in my world, um, all trying to stand up for some kind of freedom of expression. I want to ask. Do I agree about... with Trump? No. Do I did I validate him? No. But I felt like it was ultimately the right thing to do. At this point, I finished recording my conversation with John Kalaki, but we continued talking offline about the night that Donald Trump came to the Flynn in 2016. It was clear that Kalaki is not at peace about his decision to provide a platform to Trump. I asked Kalaki if we could resume our conversation online, and he agreed. John, with that whole experience of having Trump at the Flynn, would you do it again? Well, David, it was, uh, the I think, the worst night in my life, basically, when 
when it was all over and the Secret Service swept the buildings one last time and they gave me back the keys to the Flynn, as it were, um, I just sat in my office and cried before I went home to my husband because it was, um, you know, it was like I, I, I felt like I experienced fascism from the stage. And um, there was such cruelty uh, with the candidate and his supporters. So would I do it again? It'd be very hard for me to do it again. And I might have the excuse that they never paid the city for the security costs. The campaign did pay the Flynn for its rental fee, but only because I demanded it ahead of time. And they um, kept saying they would do it. And I said, okay, well, you have till three o'clock today before, um, or, you know, we're going to cancel this. And they said, well, that would give us even better ratings that, that the hometown of Bernie Sanders cancels Flynn. I said, no, it would be that you refuse to pay the rental fee. So if it's not in by three o'clock, it's canceled. And I said, hey, I'll be a hero here. I can just say you're not coming. Uh, and so, you know, at 2.30, of course, the money was put into the bank. And so we went forward with, uh, um, he, the, he, Trump's campaign did not pay for the security costs that Burlington um, incurred over that. And I think other candidates do the same thing. When presidents come here to Burlington, Secret Service costs are usually not picked up by the candidates or by the president. So there's precedent for that. But I would really have to say that the disruption it caused in our town was uh, enormous. There was a lot of emotional disruption, but the financial disruption for our city. Um, the mayor was great. The chief of police was great. We worked together on this. The Secret Service was great. We all, um, I didn't even know we had Secret Service based here in, in Burlington, but everyone came together and worked as a team to make sure that People outside were safe, uh, people inside the Flynn were safe, and that the community was safe. So that part was interesting. Uh, so it's a long way for me to say it'd be very hard for me to allow Trump to come again for the financial reasons. I think it's important that if the Flynn, I'm no longer there, so the Flynn can have whatever policies it wants, it may decide that it will not host any um, political uh, issues. But I remember we've at the Flynn space, we had when the people were running for the for governor, um, we had a debate with a different governor's uh, candidates running about their arts platform. And I think it's important for theaters to be community centers as well. So I would say a long answer to this, that yes, I think it's important is a Flynn's going to be a vital community center to allow disparate voices of contention to be aired. So the issue could come up again. It could be Trump. Um, it could well be Trump. You know, um, he may run again. And uh, this was a pretty good show for him to appear in the heart of Bernie's hometown. Um, knowing what you know, about his politics now. I mean, it could be Trump or a proxy for him, you know, who shares his views. Um, does it give you, do you believe there should be any limits on free speech or on the kind of ideas that somebody can espouse when so much of what he has said is 
targeting vulnerable people, you know, um, just and and also the the very real threat of violence wherever he goes. Um, I am a disabled gay man. He's targeted queers. He targeted the disability community. He targets women. He targets people of color. He, he whatever the other is that man espouses hatred towards. So it would be very hard for me to support him coming back. I also um, know someone like Robert Kennedy Jr., who is someone who is, you know, very anti-vaccine, which I think is, I, I wouldn't support them because I'm not sure there's any scientific backing to the theories that he has. But so there are people like that that I feel should not be given a voice, particularly at the Flynn, if it's, if it is, if it does cross the line, and I would say that if I was running the Flynn, I would say Trump crosses the line. Hmm. I would say a Robert Kennedy crosses the line. Well, John Kalaki, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. And I uh, am grateful that you were interested in my book because art. John Kalaki is the state representative from South Burlington. He is the former executive director of the Flynn Center for the Arts in Burlington. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.